Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Hey friends, before we begin the episode, I want to remind you that my next six-week course begins on February 21st. Registration opens on January 19th and closes one week afterwards. I will be hosting a free webinar on Wednesday, January 19th with a Q&A to describe the course and answer any questions you might have. For more information, visit holisticlifenavigation.com. Now let's get back to the episode. On today's episode, I meet with a wonderful man who uses ice cream to teach about culture and to heal cultural trauma. So it's, it's a whole range, it's a spectrum. There's, there's no getting around that because it's, it's new territory. It's gonna be conceptually challenging for people. And part of the reason why I chose ice cream is it allows you to, for a moment, maybe even ignore the fact that there's something unfamiliar because you're looking at, it's just an ice cream. There's no, not as much stigma as you would get with the, the original ingredient itself, yeah. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mojica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply, listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. Tapiwa Guja is a fantastic human being. I fell in love with his writing on Instagram. Someone had sent me an article of his um, where he's talking about how these traditional African foods have um, colonial names attached to them that lower their value that lower their sacredness, that lower how they're honored. And it creates a confusion in um, understanding these important beings that make up our culture. 
um, you know, you'll hear most of it in, in the interview. But for instance, the fruit that that the post I saw is a fruit called tsuvu. And he talks about how the English name for it is smelly berry finger leaf. And I ask anyone listening here to kind of take a breath. If you're not driving or, or doing anything important that uses your eyes, close your eyes. And just feel what you feel in your body when I say tsuvu. Just notice, even try saying it out loud, tsuvu, tsuvu, and just feeling that. You know, for me, I feel like it invokes something, something beautiful. My heart feels very full. It's a very pleasurable uh, name, sound to express through my lips. And then notice how it feels in your body when I say smelly berry finger leaf. Okay, smelly berry finger leaf, and even try saying it yourself. I immediately feel a constriction in my heart, the same place that had felt really expanded before, and a little constriction in my solar plexus. Now, this is the magic of somatics. Um, every word we say and the vibrations attached to that word, they have a lineage based on how they were originated, the belief, the value, the perception that's attached to that word. So when we say a word or we hear a word, we're, we're hearing and saying it intellectually, but we're also feeling it in our bodies based on the word and the perception attached to the word or the value or the meaning attached to the word. Based on that comes a biology, a biological response, an alchemical equation in the body where my biology will shift based on the meaning of something. So if I hear smelly berry finger leaf, and I hear that first word smelly, my body immediately, when I say the word smelly, has a somatic response. It starts constricting a bit for me, maybe different for you. For me, there's a bit of constriction. Why is this so important? Well, when we talk about covert cultural trauma, as Tapiwa put it beautifully, we're speaking about the echoes, what's left over from the original decades slash centuries of um, land trauma and cultural trauma and slavery and colonization. This is important for everyone on either side of the equation because when we're using words that originated from a place of judgment or being demeaning or devaluing something, we're experiencing that in our bodies. So when I hear smelly berry finger leaf and I feel a constriction, my body is already, my body that is, not my mind, my body is bracing against this being, this fruit. When I hear tsuvu, my body is not bracing. My body is curious. It's a new sound. It's a new food. I'm looking at the picture of it right now. It's this gorgeous, dark, glowing, black, maybe dark purple, even berry. And it's gorgeous. And it looks like the glistening skin of the people on that continent. It looks so beautiful. And when I look at it, I get curious. I get excited. I think, ooh, what's that going to be like? This is the importance of um, understanding the somatics of the echoes and reverberations of cultural traumas. And this is especially important um, when you live in a multicultural region of the world. For me, living in America in the Northeast and upstate New York, I share this land with so many different cultures and the words we use and the way we perceive things and what we think is dirty and clean or what we think is normal or abnormal comes from our own inherited cultural values. And they're going to be very different. So as we learn how to be more embodied around these, this, let's say this biology of belief and the physiology of meaning, we start to understand how cultural trauma continues to perpetuate itself long after the initial historic atrocities took place. And it's how we can have these unconscious, subconscious, covert um, ruptures with one another, a term called microaggressions. 
It's a way we can have these without even knowing we're having them because we're referring to the same object with different meaning and different value. So I had this beautiful conversation with Tapiwa about his upbringing, what led him to learn how to blend, essentially, uh, indigenous African foods into ice cream, making flavors that were really with really unusual um, items of heritage, of African heritage. And through that, people are able to reconnect with through their bodies to their cultural history, uh, a history that they many have internalized as uh, less than or of lesser value or something to be ashamed of because of these ongoing echoes of cultural trauma, which, as we know, shows up systemically, absolutely and institutionally, no question. Our conversation focuses on the body, that's what I do. And Tapiwa seems to have a great grasp on that as well. And um, just hearing the trajectory of his life and his studies and being a scientist and then being an ice cream shop owner in South Africa, it's, it's really inspiring. So I'm going to stop speaking and let the episode speak for itself. Okay, so I want to welcome Tapiwa Guzia to the show today. Welcome. Hey, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Um, Him and I have tried to connect so many times and I was having issues or you were having issues and now we got to finally meet up. Uh, You know, someone actually sent me a link to your Instagram page because you posted something about this specific fruit. And I, it was very profound and it was, it was at the perfect time for me to read it. Um, and I want you to first read that. And then from there, you and I will have a discussion and talk about a few things. Sure thing. Sounds good. Let me get into it. So just a little description. It's a little wild fruit from Zimbabwe called Suvu. And I'm going to be talking about that. This is a fruit called Suvu. It's an absolute classic flavor of my childhood and it's made an appearance on the menu this week. But I'm actually going to talk a little bit about names, specifically the colonial habit of naming things from the continent and indeed wherever they went in inconsiderate and destructive ways. The English name for Tsuvu is smelly berry finger leaf. There's also another delicious chewy fruit called matoe or African chewing gum or snot apple. Matamba fruits are called monkey oranges, and of course, impepo is called African sage, when in fact there are numerous true sages on the continent that are actually related to North American sage. Impepo has nothing to do with sage. A few issues at hand here. It is difficult to see value in, in things that have been taken out of their context and are categorized using dismissive and diminutive language. It's also difficult to be seen as distinct peoples and cultures with their own stories when you're always being compared and approximated to someone or something else. We have names, languages, dialects, technologies, musical instruments, art movements that are in fact predecessors to the very things European sentiment uses as a benchmark against us. Always inadequately approximating entire civilizations against some ideal that we have no business aspiring to. I am not a fan of this sort of reductive thinking. On the continent, we've made great efforts in learning and embracing other languages and cultures, forced upon us at times, pronouncing very unnatural sounds to our own context and navigating the complex world of loose versus loose versus lewd versus nude versus brood versus blood and on and on. I look forward to the day I don't have to proudly preach about African ice cream and instead can move beyond the concept entirely and just sell ice cream that makes sense in this place. The day I can just call Tsuvu by its name and not have to rely on an English or French descriptor or some such other inadequacy. Mm. So powerful. I mean, there's so much there that I, I want to talk to you about because I, I read that right as I was really understanding colonialism in a new way, right? Mm. And what I was really understanding, one one branch, because there's so many branches of it, is uh, in the naming of things and in the habit of naming things based on your own, just like you said, like a reductive perception compared to how the being itself wants to be called. 
right? Or how the indigenous people of that land have related to that being, this fruit in this case, for so many thousands of years. And so when I read that, I thought this is so precisely written about this exact branch. I thought it'd be really helpful to talk about it on this podcast because you're you're essentially you're using ice cream to mm. teach about African heritage, are you not? Like, tell, tell yes. me about that. Tell me that part first. Like, how did that even? How did you even decide to do that? That's <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know about your own sort of life journey, but I always find life tends to happen if you're paying attention for moments right if you're, lo- you're looking out for things not because you're planning but you're keeping an open mind and things show up like you're saying with this very piece it showed up in a moment when you're being thoughtful about a particular thing so the ice cream i used to make ice cream for myself just for the fun of it and i did that for about eight years prior to starting the company and i was doing it purely for the love of desserts and I was exploring a lot of different flavors from around the world and leaning heavily into the Mediterranean and Southeast Asia and a bit of South America as well. Until one day, after a few different sort of like significant moments, my grandmother passing away, I went to Indonesia for a little holiday and re-examining my life at the time, I realized I was doing something that wasn't really fulfilling my life anymore. And that was my life as a scientific researcher. So I wanted to change of place, change of pace. And I decided I'm going to open an ice cream company with the intention of selling interesting flavors, but definitely flavors that are not from the continent. I, was, I knew I was going to be doing more of the same because I was a comfort zone. And I knew the thing that set me apart, maybe I'm a black business owner selling ice cream. You know, that was the angle initially. Then I started trying to find little gimmicks or maybe I do like cocktail-based ice creams or fermented ice creams or like savory ice creams. And none of it was really hitting the spot. You know, it wasn't doing anything for me until one day I was in a Zimbabwean restaurant just getting some food and I saw some snacks from home. And that's when I thought, what if I put some of these into ice cream? What would happen then? And bought a bunch of different things, five different ingredients, went home, made ice cream immediately. And then... When I tasted it, I then realized, oh, wow, this is what ice cream is meant to taste like, considering where I live. And that was that moment where almost like if you're writing like the movie, this is like when the, the tone is like this sort of <laughs> triumphant music playing, like yeah, <laughs> excitement yeah. all slides into place. That was the first moment where I realized what I was doing and shifted. It's just gorgeous because what I love. So I, I, I want to first ask, you said you made it just out of pleasure. You didn't study how to make ice cream. You just kind of developed it yourself. Yeah. So I was watching, I think, MasterChef Australia uh, many, many years ago, I think 2010. And I saw them making ice cream using dry ice. And because I was working in a scientific lab, we had access to liquid nitrogen and dry ice. I was like, oh, I've never had an ice cream churner, but now that I know I can do this, let me try and make some ice cream. Oh, cool. A few different recipes and then just went for it. And because I'm a scientist, a recipe is just another scientific protocol to follow. Right, of course. And and the curiosity of an experiment, all those things seem Mm. very natural, right? For for the science mind. (laughs) What I love about it is that, so you had this epiphany, like you're enjoying making ice cream. Then you have this epiphany that says, oh, I'm going to use, you know, like traditional foods, right, in mm. these ice cream flavors. Mm. And then where did it jump into? And then I'm going to use this as a platform to teach people about our heritage, people part mm. of the heritage, people not part of the heritage. Like, where did mm. that shift into education and a platform for teaching? So, again, a very sort of organic transition. The first thing that was critical here. I started doing little pop-up events, like little tasting menus. And the very first one that I did, it was nine different courses of ice cream alone with a few little like toppings and sugar cones, that kind of thing. And it was nine different flavors from Zimbabwe specifically. And I did it in South Africa. There's something called Heritage Month. So the month of September, people make an effort to dress in their heritage clothing and food and other things are celebrated. And it was about 20 different guests, some of them South Africans, Zimbabweans, Nigerians, Kenyans. It was a mix of people from around the continent mostly. And what I noticed in that tasting experience, I was doing a worse job than the guests at 
educating the space. I was like, oh, this is a fruit from Zimbabwe or this is a dish from Zimbabwe. I love it because blah, blah, blah. The moment I left the serving area to go back to the kitchen, is the Zimbabweans when I was like, actually, he's made it this way. In my context, would make it that way. Then the Nigerians like, actually, I recognize this dish, but in a different way. So even in Nigeria, we're having something similar. And suddenly you realize, as different as all these treatments were, there was a commonality mm. across different cultures, even across different regions of the continent. And I started realizing the conversation was more powerful than me just sitting and droning and talking about a thing. Mm -hmm. If I get other people to actively teach each other, there's no way I'm going to learn no more than that whole room of different cultures, you know? So then I started pushing more and more of these tasting menus and started playing a lot more with different creations beyond the ice cream and also making themes and trying to find less commonly used ingredients and herbs and spices and philosophies even to incorporate into these dishes to help people recognize the extended universe of possibilities versus, you know, every culture has got their greatest hits that are sort of like safe and comfort and, mm -hmm. and people always revert to them. But I was like, but actually there's a lot more you walk past every day that you're ignoring, you're not noticing that historically would have been using, you'd have been aware of. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, I, what I love about it is just the idea of using something so pleasure-based, which is ice cream and so mm -hmm. delightful and so innocent and like easy to understand and to blend new flavors and indigenous flavors. And like you said, the, um, the fringe foods and herbs, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Things that aren't popular and celebrated already. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder like, how, how is it experienced? Like how do people, are people like, whoa, this is a weird taste or, Ooh, this is amazing. You know, how, how do they experience these incredible foods that are not often celebrated? Mm. So one of the most amazing parts of what I'm doing is a consequence of what I'm doing rather. So when I make flavors, I don't do recipe de development. I think about it for a little bit, maybe like a week, I'm ruminating on an idea for a dish. I make it in the moment Whatever comes out, comes out. I put it on the menu. The beautiful thing is human beings have such a range of palate preferences. Someone is going to like that flavor. That's been the biggest lesson. No matter how outrageous I go with it, no matter how, maybe even I don't like that flavor, I know someone is going to show up and they're going to enjoy that flavor. So the reception with each flavor is varied and as I get more and more sort of regular customers, I can already recommend, oh, it's Louise today. Louise is probably going to mess with this end of the fridge. Let me just recommend these ones for Louise because I know their personality and their preferences. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of like return customers who have come to appreciate the dynamic nature of the space mm -hmm. and the non-recurrent theme. I never repeat flavors ever. So there's always something new to try. Then you get the sort of the sort of like the hipster sentiment, like I know this cool spot in Observatory, let's go, you know, to, yeah. to be that one person in the group who's got culture or whatever. The 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 person chasing a fad. Yeah, yeah. Then you, then you get the more hesitant, but curious kind of person, skeptical, but still willing to engage. Then you also get the really staunch, like non-believer, like the shop thinking they're going to get some ice cream. They see the menu, they're like, oh, actually, I'm okay, thank you. And then they leave. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a whole range. It's a spectrum. There's there's no getting around that because mm -hmm. it's, it's new territory. It's going to be conceptually challenging for people. And part of the reason why I chose ice cream is it allows you to, for a moment, maybe even ignore the fact that there's something unfamiliar because you're looking at, it's just the ice cream. Yes. There's no not as much stigma as you yes. get with uh, the original ingredient itself. Yeah. That's what I love about it because it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, when I read your, your articles that you post, it's interesting to read again, there's these, these, these heavy realities um, of colonialism and even racism mm -hmm. that are, mm -hmm. that are coming through the, like, as you're trying to reclaim the original names and relationships to these foods, like in this mm -hmm. article you read just now, that's something that's very heavy and is dealing with trauma and is dealing with colonization and so many current situations that are still results of this. Mm. Yet you're able to do it with like the innocence and 
and safety of an, an ice cream cone. I mean, it, yeah. it's so interesting to me that these <laughs> these two huge extremes of like an ice cream cone, which is really easy, and then essentially the results of colonialism, which is really intense, they get to be together. Yeah. And you know, the the kind of therapy I do is called somatic therapy, and it's it's similar to what you're doing. Um, it's you know, I'm working with people to feel safe enough in their body to then physically go in and feel these remnants of whatever traumas they've experienced. So mm. there's like this resourcing of let's find pleasure, let's find goodness, let's find warmth, and then use that to go deeper into something that'd be really hard to tolerate. And that's how I see these ice creams. I mean, very similar. Mm. So I, I want to kind of turn the to this, the the conversation now to like, cultural trauma and healing cultural trauma and what what's your personal experience just as an individual you know where where are you from in africa zimbabwe you said yes so you're from zimbabwe and what's your experience um from that land with culture being challenged or colonialism or racism like what's your experience that intersects in this work you're doing now it's it's actually an interesting sort of turning point. Me living in South Africa now was necessary for me to recognize some of the things that happened as a kid that I never took note of. Because South Africa, in a lot of ways, mirrors uh, America and the Black experience in America and South Africa, very similar uh, in different ways. And for most of my childhood, I was around predominantly black people in black spaces, but my family is very mixed. So I have a lot of British European family. My step parents are both white. I've got cousins who are of mixed ancestry because some are, some part is Zimbabwe, some part is British. And I remember growing up in a world that wasn't overtly like racist, but I remember feeling like whiteness is superior. I remember feeling black ingredients or local ingredients uh you know like struggle foods they're not for a sophisticated person and aspirations of eating better and like taking like home cooked leftovers to school versus other kids eating like a ham and cheese there was definitely a contrast and an othering within that experience as well so my home space was very proud to be black and we ate things that we grew, we're very in touch with what food means. Like when you come back from school, from boarding school, you'd catch a chicken and then someone or yourself would kill that chicken to celebrate you coming back, you did well at school. So you are aware that when I'm eating this meat, this is what it means to eat meat. I know someone took care of this for like six months, feeding it every single day and all these other things. So the home space was very food centered and also very food proud, but the greater community and the greater sort of ethos within the country was very shameful and like dismissive of our cuisines. And it was also something that's restricted to, we eat this out of necessity versus out of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yet my home experience was very pleasurable around food, like wild fruits and my grandmother had an orchard space. So coming to South Africa, I came to study and I studied at the University of Cape Town, which is a very more like a British space in terms of a colonial echo. And then during that time, I was just mostly focused on studying assignments, exams, studying assignments, exams. So I never really introspected about the South African experience. But then when I moved to a place called Stellenbosch, which is predominantly an Afrikaans or sort of Dutch colonial backdrop i it it lined up with me finally having some time to think about things bigger than myself and also recognizing the injustice in the space that's a lot more prevalent than it would be at uct or a little more visible rather and that's when i realized actually something's not right here and when i started going back i'm now seeing actually it's nothing unique to south africa in the other different african countries i've been in that thing has always been there South Africans are a lot more in your face and confrontation about it. And it made me more aware. Yeah. You said so many important things. You said um, colonial echo, which I love. 
because um, when it comes to trauma, you know, the the physical remnants in the body, I'm, I always refer to as an echo, like there's a reverberation of an event that even passes down through the lineage of generations, right into the bodies of people. And so when you're talking about this colonial echo, and then you also said the word wasn't as visible, right? Like it became more visible to you. And then you noticed, oh, that was always there. It was just really covert. Mm. And I, I think that's super important for people to hear how covert the echoes of colonization <clears throat> and cultural trauma really are, where it's internalized, you know, within the culture itself mm. to mm. say, oh, this is peasant food, right? Or this yeah. is lower, we want to eat better, which means more processed and more British, you know, whatever we want to call it, right? But mm. I, I find that so interesting how we start internalizing shame about our own indigenous cultures. Yeah. Uh, so as that became more visible for you, as the echo became more visible, and then you went home and then you noticed, oh, it's here, it's just more covert. Mm. How did you start, like, what? Did, how did that shift something in you personally? Like, what did that mean to you to notice? I grew up in this beautiful black space and there was this undercurrent of this internalized shame happening around me. Like, how'd that mm. show up in you if it did? So this then became part of figuring out purpose, life purpose, right? So... I believe we're all here to do multiple things. I don't really think someone should be doing one thing day in, day out for the rest of their life. And I've always done, I've always been interested in being mediocre at, at a bunch of different things. So art, uh, movement, a little bit of sex education, food, science. I've never been really committed to one particular thing. I'm a very creative and expressive person. And so what happened in making all these connections, even like struggling with the institutional racism at Selimbosh and struggling with my own identity complications, all these other things, what became clear is I have chosen a life that looks a certain way. So I have no intentions of getting married. I have no intentions of having children. My parents don't require me to support them financially. I don't have any other dependents of any sort, really. What I realized is all the things that I've been doing all along were setting up a purpose. And that purpose is how do I help heal some of that trauma, some of that uh, destroyed esteem for the continent, mm -hmm. right? And recognizing that actually part of it is saying, oh, I'm Zimbabwean, but actually Zimbabwean as a concept or South Africa as a concept is because of borders that were created by colonial efforts. So actually yes. I'm from this continent, regardless of where you will find me on the continent. And beyond that, I'm from this planet. So I set out to figure out how can we restore some of that damage, heal some of those uh, souls or spirits and minds, because I can do that at no personal cost to myself. Really, uh, there's some cost, but there are no real consequences beyond me. If anything fails, if it's destructive, if the burden becomes too far, the real victim in course, there would be me. Mm. So if someone in my position, I've got such a level of privilege, I'm uh, educated, whatever that means. Um, I'm a man. I sound the way I sound. I look the way that I look. And there's a lot of power that I have and responsibility that I have with that power to do some fighting for a cause that, you know, someone else who's supporting three other siblings, both their parents are dead. You know, they have a lot more pressure to conform and play the game that we all are forced to play mm -hmm. than I do, you know. So that's when I realized actually what I'm interested in in all these little different creative outlets has always been... And I didn't know it at the time, but it's always been about helping other Black people see value in who they are and what they're doing. Mm. Oh, I love it. I love just the um, awareness that there's a certain privilege you get to have without having those dependencies and without having those requirements mm. to conform. And mm. essentially what I hear is there's like a freedom in that you know, part of that is freedom and space to be able to take up because you're only responsible for you. 
And so you get to use that in this lifetime to really help people reconnect to what's beautiful about them. And I I think that's so powerful. Um, Again, I relate to the work, different reasons we do what we're doing, Mm -hmm. but the same Mm -hmm. venue or the same Mm -hmm. medium of, you know, just to notice, I'm I'm always so interested in how people internalize things. You know, it, it, it like it's it's there it's it's an alchemy really of seeing a, a concept, internalizing it, and then something in you believes that concept. Mm. And a, a lot of the work that I do around uh, colonialism is for people to understand what parts of them are colonizing themselves, right? And I think it's it's so powerful when someone can see, obviously there's a systematic issue. That's not a question. Um, yeah. I'm not political. I'm not good at that. So I don't work with that, but I'm yeah. really good individually. So I like to show people, okay, as, as we work with the system and we try to change laws and we try to, you know, uplift and inspire people and educate what's happening with you. Like what's your own relationship to that internal colonizer, to that internal spirit or being that has been created that works against you. And I think what really moved me about your post was just the, the simplicity and the depth of a name. Like even when you said, um, I forget how you, I'm going to say it. I'm going to look so I can say it properly. Pronouncing very unnatural sounds to our own contexts. You know, it's, Mm. it's what's powerful about that with me is, is I just think of vibrations and I think Mm. of, when I think of indigenous culture, culture in general, I think these vibrations came from a relationship to the land where these people originated or grew, right? Or nourished from. And there's something so sacred in a vibration, you know, like when you talk and you feel, or when there's music and you hear it, you feel, it moves something in you. And I always get curious about um, people whose who's other second or third language is English and what it must feel like when a mouth is used to forming specific kind of words and syllables and sounds has to kind of like manipulate itself to say, let's say in this case, like an English word. Mm. And, and I just get curious about like how you as a human being, if this is making any sense, what I'm saying, if (laughs) how you experience that around in your own body, right. From learning different languages, how many languages do you speak? Two. Okay, so you speak two languages and you speak, is English your second or first? It's interesting because it's it's, it's like truly bilingual with a lean towards the English because the instruction language in the country is English. Oh, wow. Wow. Because you speak so So well. You learn Shona in English from the get-go as a kid. Hmm. But once you're in the formal academic institution or the machine of it all, mm-hmm. English is what you're going to be really, really developing because mm-hmm. everything else but Shona is taught in English. And that other language is called Shona? Or the one that I speak, yes, yeah. Shona. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you know, your English is beautiful. And it's like when you're speaking that, however, I'm just mm-hmm. so curious when your body also has Shona in it, like running through your bloodline, like what's that mm-hmm. like to even form the words? I mean, it's just so curious to me. Yeah, so the thing that I'm aware of, right, actually a few different things, but I'll just say one or two. Because of that transition that you have to make into school life, the even the fact that my, my first name is Delroy and my middle name is Tapiwa. Mm. At home, I, I'm called Tapiwa. First day of school, they asked me, what's your first name? And by that, they meant, what's your English name? Mm. I'm like, oh, my name is Delroy. From that day, I became Delray for the rest of my academic career until I, I left university and I officially decided to change to my Shona name. So alone, the school system is already telling you, this is not who you are. This is who you are. This British version. That's who we accept here. And then eventually there was, I think growing up consuming a lot of American culture on TV and in music, there's also an aspirational aspect of trying to be more black American. So you start talking with a bit of an American accent or dressing in a similar fashion and like trying to access blackness that looks like that mm-hmm. because it's a better kind of blackness than what we have. So you start becoming ashamed of even speaking Shona in general, even at home, 
Mm. You know, like when you're in that teenage phase, you're like, no, I don't speak that, you know, given now you start rebelling against the diet as well. I don't eat that anymore. Can we do burgers or whatever? And so for a while, and this happens to a lot of people, I know from a Zimbabwean context for sure, I don't know about other countries. At some point, some of us lost our ability to actually speak Shona properly. And some of us lost our ability to write in Shona. And I remember reconnecting with that maybe five, six years ago and making more effort to send uh, texts in Shona to my other Shona-speaking people and practicing it whenever I meet a Zimbabwean who speaks Shona, just speak more and more and more of it. And I used to have to ask, what's that word again? What's that word again? What's that word again? Mm -hmm. Because it was gone. It was like almost non-existent because I'd spent so many years in South Africa as well and only relying on English. So I didn't even learn the South African language either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, you end up thinking automatically in English. It, it's not even uncomfortable. You like sink into that groove. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself struggling with your own language. And now I'm, I'm way better at it now and I can speak in my own language nonstop and have no problem with it. But even that's still quite loaded because Shona mm -hmm. as a language and as a classification system is a colonial uh, remnant as well. Mm -hmm. So we have a few different tribes, 16 that are recognized nationally, but it's way more than 16. Mm -hmm. Of the 16, 15 were all just lumped into Shona. So Shona is not a, a name that came from within the system. It's a name that was created to describe a group of people, another group when Debele people, and the Debele people came from South Africa into Zimbabwe. So it's a very distinct language difference compared to the other Zimbabwean languages that were there prior. So even the fact that I speak Shona means I've lost my own language, which is Chikore Kore. Mm. because they took some aspects of Chikore Kore, some aspects of Chindau, some aspects of Chisezuru and Chinyanja, whatever, and made this algamation. It's like sort of like, um, not pigeon. In South Africa, something called Fanigalo, where it's like miners from different parts of the country and different parts of the continent came together into one place mm -hmm. and they made their own kind of Esperanto version of a language. It's kind mm -hmm. of like that, where... Mm -hmm the original language don't exist anymore because this one dominant thing came in and just like shut everything else down, yeah. See, that's so important because again, when we think about the echo of cultural trauma from colonization, mm -hmm. it's like if we go back to the berry, not Sufu, tell me how to pronounce Sufu. Sufu, Sufu, Sufu. So if we think of like Sufu and we think about the sound, the feeling and the heart that it makes, even when you say that, that native name, and then mm. when you hear the English smelly berry leaf, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like two different worlds. <laughs> it's like not even the same creature anymore. Mm. And mm. I think it's just such a good example of how um, when you're speaking about another culture through the tongue of the opposite culture, again, these references are perceptions based on value, essentially, right? Like mm. in this case, the, this fruit, that's a, that, that name brings it of a low and shameful value. Mm. Whereas the other name, Suvu, is there a meaning you can translate into that? Or is that just the name? No, this one is just the name of the thing. We have yeah. some other fruits that have a translation kind of thing, but this one is just... It is what it is, yeah. It is what it is. And I think it's mm -hmm. so profound to understand that in this modern day, these words that we might use to describe other cultures, mm -hmm. where, how they originated, you know, like what kind of mind created that term? It, mm -hmm. In this case, it was a mind that was looking down on that culture. And yeah. so then, like you said, growing up, even like as a teenager, there's this rebellious phase where you're not necessarily rebelling against your parents, you're actually rebelling against your culture. And yeah. that's, that's so, I mean, it's so important, I just think, for people to hear and understand. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. The other day, two days ago, I was having a conversation about the etymology of this one particular word. So Southern and Eastern Africa, white people are normally called uh, Murungu or Mulungu or Mzungu, some kind of variation of a word that sounds like that. 
And I'm researching the etymology of this word and I'm discovering so many interesting facets to it. So for one, one of the prevalent meanings is God. The, that word means God. Wow. And is God in whatever context that tribe is about. So not God in the Christian sense. And the other meaning is also the aimless wanderer. Like if I say Unezungu, it means you, you're, like, you're like dizzy, you're like spinning out, you don't mm-hmm. know what you're doing. You're kind of just like flapping in the breeze. And that was also used to describe white people as explorers. They're just like going from place to place, like not really understanding what they are doing. Like mm-hmm. look at those crazy dizzy fools, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> and so that word can be a pejorative depending on how I say it. But it can also mean provider because God was the provider and then whiteness became the provider under enslavement conditions, indentured labor conditions. And to this day, if someone is your boss, you would call them Murungu or Musungu wow. or Mulungu, regardless of their race, because it's the exalted one, it's the one above me who is providing safety and um, financial success, whatever the case may be. Right. and. That name at some point then became uh, like a, an uh, aspirational word. So even white people insisted on being called Murungu because of the connotation to God and the other dizzy aspects of, uh, were washed away. And even our name for God then changed. So you don't find a person saying Murungu and they mean God, don't mean a white person. But then when you think back, we have a word like uh, Vasinamavi means the people without knees because the first people who showed up on the, on the continent would have been men wearing long pants, mm-hmm. right? So we wouldn't have seen the knees. So that's one sort of neutral description. Mm-hmm. Vachena means just like white, but also Kuchena means to be clean. Mm-hmm. And then Munumutema means a black person. Or Munakashiba means a black person as well. And Kushiba also means to be dirty. So clean and whiteness, dirty and blackness. And then like the last word, I just want to share this last thought. The more sort of revolutionary word, I suppose, it means the plunderer of wealth. That's other word for whiteness Mm. in that sort of contextual backdrop, yeah. So it's just like fascinating what and a single word can mean and what it can do, what it can change. I think it's extremely important and fascinating. And I'm so glad you shared all those because I, one thing that I teach it, it, people is the biology of thought and belief and how mm. belief and value and the way we perceive something within a nanosecond changes our chemistry. So when mm. you speak a word, the lineage of that word literally changes your, it, it, it can create adrenaline, it can create mm. like oxytocin, make you feel really mm. happy, right? It, mm. it does that. So mm. there's this, right? So there's this like added layer, not just like the intellectual meaning, but there's this whole biochemical somatic meaning that says, when I say, like when I say tsufu, I feel something. When I say mm. smelly berry leaf, I feel a completely different experience in my body. That's powerful. And mm. that's part of the subconscious echo. And mm. I, what do we want to say? Like continuation, perpetuation of, you know, uh, cultural trauma from colonialism. And so I, I've I've really enjoyed this discussion. Like I would love to have you back and talk more about this because I, I have sure. a feeling you know so much more <laughs> that we can talk about <laughs> that I, I just like skimmed the service today with you. Um, but I, I just, I appreciate your heart and your mind and the work you're doing and your, your the ease in which you speak about these really triggering topics for a lot of people. It, it, it's easy to talk to you about it. It can be really hard, right? It can be painful. I love how you move through it with such grace um, and creativity. It's really beautiful. Do you, do you have a oh, way people you. can find you? Is there any way you want to tell us like how to find your work or how to, if you're traveling to South Africa, we have a lot of mm-hmm. African listeners. If someone travels to South Africa, perhaps. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Where, where are you located at your shop? So the physical location is in Observatory, Cape Town. Um, 
the the nice thing about what I'm doing is if you just Google African ice cream, I'm the only one who comes up. <laughs> That's a nice, sad irony of it all, right? Oh, yeah. Which is what I'm trying to change. But the website is tapitapi.co.za. So T-A-P-I, T-A-P-I. And the one, the other social media platform I'm most active on is Instagram. So underscore T-A-P-I, underscore T-A-P-I. That's where you, like the post you're talking about, that's where you find all those kind of musings and thoughts and mm. rambles. Yeah. I love them. I, I look really forward. I'll be reaching out again in the future and we can collaborate more in some way because I think the work you do is really valuable. And um, I'd just love to share more of it. Thank you very much. And actually, I think... Uh, it would be good to have our own little conversation. Um, there's a lot you've said now that I'm already thinking, but I want to think about it some more. But you said a lot of powerful things, and it's it's so sort of, it's wonderful when I catch myself wanting to learn about the, the host or the interviewer and what they have to say, because the ranchers have done so many interviews and conversations and talks and podcasts, blah, 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 blah not to brag, but as a reality of what I've done. And people stop at the very predictable questions and it's hard for me to show up. So I only showed up because I've seen what you speak on and what you Mm. do as well. So thank you so much for that as well, for sharing your own perspective and bring a very unique experience to the conversation. Oh, I'm so glad. And I would love to, yeah, we'll just, we'll just have a nice, We'll have a nice conversation just you and I off air just to like muse a little bit and learn some more. That'd be fun. I'll reach out. Okay, my friend, you take good care. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. To check out Tapiwa's articles and art and musings, you can visit Instagram at underscore tappy underscore tappy. And to check out his shop and what he does and even order something, you can go to tappytappy.co.za. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice. What's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give in to mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.